It's November 15th, 2021, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. The first one we got, Pentagon Tech Chief seeks to bolster R&D work with allies from Defense News. Heidi Hsu has discussed the Pentagon's research and development priorities with her counterparts in Australia, Japan, Latvia, Germany, and the UK in an effort to establish monthly teleconferences with U.S. allies. The first tranche of experiments that we're doing in FY23 has three projects that are joint two with Australia and one with the UK. The comments come amid nervousness from some allies as the U.S. defense industry over democratic efforts to boost domestic manufacturing by strengthening by American requirements. So this one was a little bit interesting, but I I was just thinking, it's like, okay, for FY23, which is still another year plus off potentially, uh, we're going to have three projects you know, with, with two, two nations. And that's supposed to kind of like combat some of this nervousness over by American seems like kind of chump change a little bit. Uh. Well, that, that, I mean, that Australia deal is, is a big one. I, I think that one took a lot of people by surprise uh, because we just don't typically share like cutting edge nuclear sub technology. So, um, so that was a big one. UK. Yeah. I mean, the UK one probably, not that uh, probably not that surprising. Germany actually is a little bit surprising because we, we haven't historically had that much success in, in teaming with them because they just generally have different thoughts on, uh, on on defense. And yeah, I don't know what, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, Germany hasn't seemed to be in like a very, one of our least closed allies when we to actually buy technology from each other and share, share technology. But Japan and Latvia just make a ton of sense. I mean, Latvia is you know, all the Baltic countries are right there. Um, just like Poland, you know, very close to Russia, very much under threat of, you know, malicious behavior. So a lot of incentives there, a lot of incentive from Japan. So those make a lot of sense. I would have loved to have seen uh, India on the list. I, I was a little bit disappointed. I just read an article this morning that India just is buying a, or looking at very close to buying an S-400s from Russia, which will be a really, really disappointing um, uh, you know, thing if, if that's actually if it's actually true, but yeah, we'd like to see India in here a lot more. They seem to be missing from some of our um, uh, multi nation efforts. So. Yeah, I guess I, I guess we do have the uh, the quad, and but that's not having anything to do with uh, you know acquisition. I guess one of the issues here is like with all of this allied stuff, it's everybody wants business, but nobody wants to give up their business. Right. So it's like, I feel like that's where it always just like starts and ends. It's just like, oh, we want to do work together, but I want to keep the money in my, you know, my countries. And they're just like, okay, we'll give you two or three. Okay. So Australia wants to do the AUKUS deal, um, get some nuclear subs. And it's not even clear what's going to be the answer there. Right. It feels like if they were really serious about that, the first thing they would do is just like, we'll send over, you know, Australian sailors to go serve on you know, nuclear submarines and start learning as like this thing starts working out, right? Can't just, you know, hand them over a sub and just be like, well, there you go. No, I mean, you're right. It's that anytime, anytime we do anything internationally with, with partners, it's always, it's always going to have that, uh, you, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be mutually beneficial. Uh, and I think, I think, I think the real, the really good relationships boil down to our ability to leverage some experts, some particular expertise that they have, uh, that maybe we're a, a little weaker in, you know, so, so Germany does a lot of high tech, does a lot of high tech stuff, but, y- y- you know, so, so maybe there are some, some leverage points there. 
And, you know, but it has to be mutually exclusive. Even F35, the whole partner arrangement that we had, uh, that we have with the partners is, is, is relying upon them having a certain amount of the business in their country, certain amount of jobs and things like that. So there's always offsets and things like that involved. It's never simple. So yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, sticking with uh, uh, Heidi Shu, DOD on the cusp of cutting edge innovations from military spot. As far as spending for research and development for items that have great utility for the warfighter, Shu said that the department is focused on developing innovative technologies in which the commercial industry has no business interests that warrant their investment. And so that that, that little tagline from uh, Shu actually kind of made me think about Mike Brown and this whole idea of you know, fast follower, commercial technologies kind of racing ahead and eight of the 10, you know, modernization priorities are being led by commercial. So we need to be able to do kind of business with commercial. And it seems like she was kind of walking that back a little bit here, um, that a lot of the things she's looking at, you know, commercial industry just straight up has no business interest. And I wonder to what degree it's just like, you know, the, the military mission is just too far afield or whether it is, you know, it just doesn't make business sense because it's too hard to do business with the Department of Defense. So they don't really have business uh, interests in that respect, even if they could in, in some some respects. Yeah, I, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly. Like, I would imagine that comment was targeted at very particular uh, technology areas that 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 just don't really have a lot of commercial applicability, which I mean, I think that's increasingly getting hard to find. I mean, hypersonics is a clear one, you, you know, but even directed energy and other things that have, that do have applicability uh, in commercial solutions, um, you, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to find. But she did say in the other article she was talking about, she did talk about that, you know, the Pentagon's new tech priorities that she's updated uh, and they include, you know, integrated networking of disparate systems, high energy lasers. So maybe high, more, these more high energy things are something the commercial sector wouldn't invest as much in, um, you know, uh, resilient space systems. So maybe, you know, most of the com- commercial space systems out there aren't really focusing on, on some, some of those aspects that the military had to be more, more uh, focused on. So yeah, it, it might be a targeted comment because I think some of her other comments have shown that she's very much on board uh, leveraging all the technology that's already out there and kind of onboarding it and, and experimenting with it. So yeah, I don't think she meant that to be too pejorative. But she does bring up a good point, you know, and sometimes I kind of have that feeling that, you know, the Department of Defense just is different. And do you need like a commercial provider to tailor their thing to the Department of Defense and then have to, you know, go through all that regulatory crap that they don't want to do um, and then end up siloing that segment, in, you know, for in one way or another, not being as innovative in that new segment? Or do you just need to like, you know, have companies that are able to repackage that kind of, um, you know, technology in different ways for the government. And uh, there's not all that much overlap. I, I just wonder, you know, even in the perfect world of whatever acquisition regulation looks like, does is there really like this huge overlap of government and commercial business? Or does the government, you know, providers actually stay pretty separate? Um, I don't know. I still think it goes back to Steve Steve Blank's point that he's he's made multiple times of, you know, if we actually started onboarding, you know, uh, transitioning, scaling, all those words that, you know, more of it where we were not just you know experimenting, prototyping, but actually, you know, actively using more commercial technology, 
Um, you know, if the department gets better at that and can actually do that, do that across multiple sectors uh, and show that we have a continued appetite for it, then you actually might see more androls and stuff that are, you know, maybe they were commercial companies, but they're, they're having really tight competition in the commercial sector. So maybe, maybe turning to DOD uh, becomes more attractive. You know, maybe that business case becomes a little bit more viable. Whereas right now I probably, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if um, you know, folks look at it and go, I have just no guarantee that I will even get a fair shot uh, because I'm going up against the Northrop or, you know, Lockheed or something. So yeah, maybe that's Enduril is not a, is a pure play defense contractor, right? Or at least government contractor. And to some degree, Palantir is uh, not really, but they got their start in the IC community in that iteration phase. So, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just wondering, like, does the world look more like a bunch of, you know, Palantir and, uh, and Endurals, or does it look like Google is, <laughs> you know, Google and Amazon and, and Microsoft are the, are the leading providers of government, like IVAS or something, you know? Uh, I see. Yeah. Do they, do they operate successfully in both domains, both worlds that, yeah, that's, that would be, that'll be interesting to see if more, more companies do that, or do they just become defense, you know, kind of striving to become defense unicorns as Dr. Roper used to call them. Yeah. I, but I, I have to get back with you and say that you're probably right. You know, like I think if the business environment, if, if companies say like I can scale and I can succeed and I can have reasonable profit margins in defense, they will go there. Right. Like the, the market is pretty agnostic and investors are pretty agnostic as to a lot of that stuff. They just want to be able to like have some assurances that they can, you know, turn a profit if they create value. And I think that's going to be the real crux for a department of defense. Can it correlate, you know, contractor profitability with the value and the capabilities that they bring rather than just saying, you know, everyone gets 10 to 15%. The best you can do is 20%. But if you get 21%, you know, we're going to stick DCAA on you. Right. Like if, if you can correlate the value and the profit somehow, then I think, you know, there might be a case. Yeah. We basically need to start, start from scratch on the FAR and DFARS. And all <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I hope not. <laughs> um, well, actually sticking with the same one here, there's another little um, part. The department's innovation steering group or ISG serves as a forum to drive systemic strategy, policy, programmatic, culture, and budgetary changes that will are that will allow the department to move more effectively to identify, invest in, and transition capabilities to the warfighter, Heidi Shu said, mentioning that she chairs that group. So here we go. We have the new group. I think they're also in, and Heidi Shu is in charge of that, that Raider fund where they have about $200 million. They're going to fund about 30 projects. Um, but it was interesting that, you know, this ISG, they, they actually said, you know, programmatic and budgetary um, considerations are, are going to be you know, prominent in there. I'd be interested to see what that means and how that works. Uh, R&E, you know, a couple of years ago, they were talking about R&E, you know, taking control of milestone A, and that was pretty much reject rejected. So it's not really clear, you know, like how much like influence and authority that R&E really has over, you know, this, you know, larger acquisition process beyond um, just kind of like the prototypes stage or even in the prototype yeah. stage for many of them, right? Yeah, I mean, I think they actually have more power than they used to um, because of the because of the ISG. So there's a, there's the the deputy secretary of defense is very focused on on these capability portfolios and how to understand you know is the department collectively you know generating the capabilities that the joint force needs. And so 
you know, she's basically tasked a lot of different groups, <laughs> different OSD organizations to, to kind of pull together this picture and to understand it. And that's a big part of, you know, of some of the groups that she has, um, that she runs through the, um, through the DMAG process, which is that very high level senior leader um, engagement forum. And so the ISG is one of those forums very focused on innovation. And she really has given the stick, right, to, to Heidi Shu to say, you know, make, uh, you know, make this work, you know, make the technologies, get the technologies available and let's help, you know, get them over the finish line. So I'm actually become a little bit more, more uh, bullish on the fact that I think they can do some really good things here where, you know, maybe the services were, you know, they, they were having a hard time making trade-offs then, you know, did, couldn't figure out which, what the, what technologies to go after. And maybe they just needed some encouragement uh, to say, yeah, this is a priority across the department. We need you to put more resources on this. And with the DevSecDef's backing, they can actually move money, move funding around during the PBR, during the, you know, after the POM has been submitted to OSD. So she actually, I think, has a decent amount of power at this point. So and maybe can help, you know, do that, get that funding in place for the transition. So it could be some goodness here. Yeah, I think, yeah, if she has pull with the, uh you know, the depth sec def and the D mag that then that's kind of the, the keys to the kingdom. You know, we're, I kind of had a blog post recently. She, she was talking about like, Hey, we're going to go out to all the tech accelerators. There's like more than 30 of these and get like everything. What are you procured? What are your missions? What are you doing? What have you transitioned? What are the companies? And then bring together all this information and do something with it. I'm not really sure exactly what she's trying to do with it because all the past efforts that I've seen through history have all been kind of like, well, what are we collecting and how do we bring this together? And then by the time we've done it, everything moves and has changed. So I'm not really sure whether she's trying to build like an enterprise capability of information to help the R&D community itself or whether she's trying to like actually like exert, you know, and flex some muscle and actually potentially kind of drive a lot of the program decisions in S&T community. I, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I, I think it's that awareness factor, uh, awareness piece first, where, you know, understanding all the different efforts that are going on all over the place, uh, trying to under, trying to understand, you know, uh, are the, how much resources are going to the top priorities that the technology areas that she, she just uh, put out a new list on. Um, and then, you know, understanding where the gaps are. And I think that's probably a big piece of it is one of the things the Raider Fund will probably be focused on is, you know, those joint things that fall between the seams because there are the service silos, they have their areas they focus on. So, you know, maybe the Raider Fund can serve as that, uh, you know, sort of gap filler and, and get after the stuff the services aren't. But, you know, you can't have awareness without having a, a little bit of a tendency to want to make some corrections. So I have to imagine that if, it, if that final analysis shows that everybody's putting way too much money into one technology area that's not a priority for the department, there probably will be a push to have some, you know, adjudication of that. But um, yeah, they have, they have a ways to go on the awareness piece, I think. There's just so much going on out there. Awareness is all, <laughs> one day, one day they'll, I wonder to what degree it's like, you know, the more that you have the tools and the willpower to get that awareness, the more, you know, the complexity of the system is running away from you at the same time, or maybe like those tools create more complexity. And, you know, so I wonder if you'll ever get there, like, cause it seems like leaders always want to have this perfect picture before they make a decision. So they request more and more information. And it's just like, that just seems like a way of deferring decisions. Um, 
or maybe it's just because they're at that kind of high level and they haven't been immersed in it for so long, you know? Yeah. I, I really did like the way she articulated though, her, the approach that she's taking. Uh, I know we've always talked about prototypes, but you know, she actually kind of made really clearly made the point that to be effective, we are working to shift away from the traditional linear systems development process to a nimbler approach that seeks to iterate the design to build prototypes, experiment, and rapidly transition systems. So, you know, I, I I know we say those words a lot, but I thought that was a very, very succinct piece about abandoning the legacy process, which is is something that r &E has historically supported. You know, the idea of moving into milestone A, doing te technology maturation, risk reduction, and then going into a program. They've typically supported that. And it sounds like she's essentially saying, we need a new paradigm. So I take some encouragement from that at least, but yeah. Yeah. But I would rather her be like, that's her job to drive that kind of change and to support people at the lower levels, not just in the pre milestone a or the milestone a phase, but actually driving that, especially for software intensive systems, like throughout the acquisition process and giving them that top cover rather than, you know, these are all the projects I'm going to let happen. And those projects don't get to happen. Right. Like, you know, making the decisions on behalf of, of the researchers themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think they'll be able to do that. There's just too much, but yeah, I know you're right. If you give visibility, then you start to open it up to, you know, you stop doing that. Cause that doesn't, you know, that's line, but somebody else is doing that. And yeah. That's not the right way to manage. Next one, we got world's best AI pilot. And this is from Shield AI's Ryan Sang on LinkedIn. Uh, he said, basically, pretty short here, 2020, dominated one versus one dogfighting. Uh, Mid-2021, training two versus two dogfighting. And late 2021, training 30 versus N. Getting the architecture right enables radical acceleration of learning and capability expansion. And of course, that's uh, that world's best AI pilot is, uh, you know, in reference to the alpha dog fight or what's come out of that. Cause shield AI bought Heron who, which, which won that. Um, and it looks like, you know, there was a lot of discussion on, you know, one versus one dog fighting. That's pretty simple, pretty constrained. You know, I'm not surprised that they would do well in that kind of simulated environment. Uh, but it looks like they're making some pretty rapid progress, um, getting to like these higher level engagements. So we'll be pretty interested to see what they're doing in simulation. And then like, you know, what are the real tests in the real world uh, when they get to that? Yeah, I mean, the 30 versus N is it's kind of interesting. I, you know, I think, I mean, I think we've seen videos. I mean, I've, I've been on YouTube and seen videos where like different drone manufacturers in China, you know, got drones in the air to form like letters and stuff. So, you know, I, I, I think there's probably a lot of. Did you see the one where they they had a QR code in the sky from yeah. a bunch of drones and people yeah. like it actually like bring stuff up on their phone from the QR code? That was pretty cool. I forgot about that, but yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that, I mean, that kind of makes sense to move into a swarming uh, domain um, for for this. So, so yeah, uh, that's interesting. I mean, I think it'll I think it'll depend on the conops around. You know, what is that used for? You know, what is the what are the missions that that's targeting against? Because I mean, you don't really need 30 versus one for a dogfight or for a single mission. It would definitely be more for, you know, some type of swarm thing against a, a much more sophisticated adversary using very low cost systems or some type of, you know, some type of situation like that. So, you know, curious to see, curious to see the different scenarios that they play out with that. I haven't, they don't have videos out on that, right? yet. I haven't seen any. Okay. It's the alpha dogfight. Just the dogfight one. Yeah. 
At second, Project Convergence U.S. Army experiments with joint operations in the Arizona desert, C4ISR net. In 2021, the Army brought more than 110 technologies to Arizona for experimentation. They were able to test 27 different combinations of sensors and shooters using 15 different types of sensors and 19 types of shooters. In 2020, the service could only do six meaningful sensor shooter combinations. So that doesn't sound too shabby, right? <laughs> I'd love to know exactly what they meant uh, by all that because it was pretty light on details. You know, what sensors, what shooters, what were those pathways? I don't think they're going to tell us that. But, you know, it, it, it leads me to wonder to what degree JADC2 might be coming together better than people realize and right under their noses. Um, right as they kind of like are demanding perfection, you know? So I'd be, I'd be interested to see, you know, what, what comes of this. It seems like the army is actually doing pretty well. The Navy, I think their thing is pretty classified project overmatch. So we're not really hearing, but they, they are doing all these interesting experiments. So I wonder, you know, there just needs to be some, like a team of individuals just going through and just like documenting all of this in almost like a project history kind of thing. Cause I'm sure it's so big and so complex and so many pieces. It's easy for an outsider to just say like, no one knows what's going on and nothing's going to happen. Um, but you know, maybe there is some kind of madness under underneath, or there's some structure to the madness. Yeah, no, I've been, I've been pretty curious about that too. This was, yeah, I agree. This was a fascinating article, um, and really didn't get a lot of press. I don't think I was tracking that they had this big of an experiment plan. Uh, they did. So part of the breakdown of the 110 seems to be, you know, 27 different combinations of sensors and shooters using 15 types of sensors and 19 types of shooters. So you have at least 15 different sensor technologies, 19 types of shooter technologies. Um, so I don't know, a lot of the other stuff may have actually been more networking, maybe technologies, whereas this was a big focus. It kind of acknowledged there was quite a few failures uh, on the networking front with this exercise. Uh, but a couple of things that I took away that were pretty interesting um, that, that really are encouraging, I think, is the one is that they, they did a lot of simulations to actually uh, kind of replicate what they would face in the Indo-Pacific region. So they actually had um, operational scenarios that were spread out, you know, going from Washington State down to New Mexico uh, I guess to simulate the distances, uh, or at least have some level of separation uh, from from given that you know when you're in the Pacific, you you wouldn't necessarily always be right next to each other. So yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting that they they tried to make that as um, you know as high fidelity as possible or realistic. And the other piece was let me see here. Um, Oh yeah, that that it was as joint as it was. Uh, you know, when I first read it, it sounded kind of very army centric, but it sounds like um, from some of the comments, the one uh, the army secretary basically said, "I think the thing that I'm most pleased about and maybe most surprised is the level of joint participation." Sounds like they got an F-35B from the Marine Corps. Um, not sure exactly what they got from the other services, but um, sounded like it was joint. So that's pretty encouraging, especially given our conversation last week about chat c2 and how you know how could it possibly all work together um one other thing that's final thing that surprised me was the fact that joint staff was as heavily involved um sounds like j6 and j7 were were big players in this and not just a monitoring but actually like part of the planning so so that's pretty uh, that's pretty interesting that'll be something to watch 
And it sounds like they have big, big plans for next year with actually coalition partners in the five eyes. So yeah, good on the army. This is really pretty awesome. Sounds pretty awesome. I hope actually something comes out of it that, uh, you know, fields in the near term so they can declare, you know, bigger success than just an experiment. Yeah, it seems like the the Navy and the Army are racing ahead with these types of experiments and the Air Force is kind of, you know, they they had their ABMS, you know, on ramps and that kind of got nixed and I don't really know what they're up to, <laughs> but at least Army and, and the Air Force or in the Navy seem to be moving on. And I was actually pretty surprised too at how deep the J, J6 and J7 were pretty, were involved. I guess not so much the J6 um, as they should be. And let's move on to the next one. Top General says JADC2 cross-functional team to work for three to five more years. And that's, of course, the J6 director, Dennis Crawl. Um, he said that uh, once the technology behind JADC2 is more mature, the cross-functional team could be replaced by a new yet defined structure. Crawl defended the cross-functional team structure after a report published by CSIS calling for a program executive office or lead military service to drive the broad changes needed to network data and other technologies for JADC2. But for Crawl, the CFT is the best governance for our current time, he told FedScoop. One could argue that there are other alternatives once this matures. And so I think this is kind of exactly what we're talking about, right? Uh, there's probably like this kind of um, federated approach and coordination across the disparate efforts is probably the best in the early phases. Um, I think our friend, <laughs> our friend Dan Pat put it to me pretty good once, like, you don't want to collapse the wave function too early. Right. You want to like keep those those options open um, for for a longer period of time and then collapse the wave function. So I think the the quantum space has has a good analogy there. Um, but, you know, maybe eventually it's right for a PEO or some kind of distribution of, of duties. Well, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. I, I kind of agree. I agree with, you know, Carl, that the uh, I mean, the CFT is right now the most flexible approach that it's collaborative. It brings all the players together makes them at least have to have to talk and and you know it sounds like maybe with the project convergence ex experiment there that you know maybe that is reaping benefits and that it that just getting those representatives together um is is resulting in, in better um you, you know joint experimentation and, and and other collaboration opportunities so you know if the cft goes on for three or five more years and there's their successes project convergence you know, fields things that are that are moving us closer to JADC2. The Air Force can get some wins with ABMS, and, and the Navy can get you know some wins with Project Overmatch. You know, maybe it makes the case that you don't really need to put some you know more onerous structure in place. Like maybe that, you know, maybe it'll prove the CFT is something that should be um, should should expand its longevity. So yeah, it'll be interesting to interesting to watch this. Shifting topics, MDA hypersonic missile tracking prototypes on point for 2023 launch breaking defense. The hypersonic and ballistic space sensor HBTSS satellites will be queued by the space space infrared system SIBRS and defense support satellites. And in the future, the next generation overhead persistent infrared system, um, next gen OPIR satellites that detect infrared plumes from missile launches. The HBTSS sensors would then track the missiles at their high-speed glide phase, and then hand off targeting coordinates to shooters such as the Navy's Aegis Ballistic Missile Defense System and the Army's Theater High Altitude Area Defense Interceptors. So here's actually a little bit more about networking in, in terms of you're going to have to have like kind of a suite of systems that work together in order to get 
you know, the detect, the track, and then all the way to, you know, the shoot. And so, um, you know, we've been hearing a little bit about the, the missile tracking uh, prototypes. It was, do you under, do you know, like, it was my understanding that like MDA has their own missile tracking system and then SDA is also coming out with a, a tranche of systems for missile tracking. Are those separate or are they connected at any way? No, SDA essentially would be delivering them for NDA use. Um, I'm not sure who would actually, I think they probably Space Force would operate them or, you know, yeah, I'm not sure exactly. I think, I think it might be the Space Force that would operate them. But SDA was essentially building the, that was the, um, the, the, the layer, um, uh, what, was it, what was it called? The tranche one or whatever. Uh, the, that one was, that, that was actually for, for the MDA. So yeah, that was. But, the, but that was the same as the SDAs is called hypersonic ballistic space sensor. I mean, the, the, the SDAs project is the HBTSS and they're delivering that to MDA. Oh no! I think this would be this would be something different. I think I think this is specific, particular to hypersonics. I, I think with the SDA um, effort that was underway was more to give resiliency to to the uh, overhead, uh, just the overhead mission. So I don't think I have to go back and look. I don't think the tron. I don't think the SDA's tranche one was focused on the hypersonic threat. I think this would be very focused on getting that cue and being super rapid, you know, like milliseconds to, to, uh, to, to hand off targeting coordinates for the, um, for the, for the interceptors. So, yeah, I have to go back and look at that, but I don't think the trunch one had, I think it had a different mission set. Yeah. So it looks like, um, yeah, it was an interesting question you had there because it, it looks like the, uh, uh, the uh, tranche one, uh, tracking layer that, uh, space, uh, a development agency was was uh, working on actually does include hypersonics, um, but but also has a lot of other missions there: warning, tracking, targeting, you know, global indications. So, but hypersonics is in the mix. So, yeah, there might be some duplica duplica duplication there if uh, both of these programs kind of get fielded. So, the U.S. Army's hypersonics supervisor talks tech portfolio defense news and so there's a bunch of stuff here the one that i really wanted to kind of get to was this again this idea of as a service the, re the request for white papers will probably be about a month away but really focused on two things directed energy and counter uas as a service it's likely the business model that will end up being a prime with multiple partners because you might want to have some electronic means you might want to have some high energy means you might want to have some kinetic means there's a lot of ways to do it but rather then we just buy a widget and go do all of that work. We're going to try a different model, which is as a service. So we talked about this before. I was kind of hoping there would be some more insight into what the hell as a service actually meant, <laughs> but um, it doesn't seem like he gave me anything more um, in front of that, but it just seems like maybe they're just going to say price per base. Like, I don't even know what they would do, like price per square meter of base protected um, over a period of time. I would be, I would just be interested to see what that, that business structure ends up being. Well, there was, there was one uh, piece in the article about, uh, they talked about, you know, what the companies will have to do is develop a model uh, that say, we, you know, we will give them the ranges and types of equipment that they need to be able to destroy. And then they'll put together the material solution to do that. Um, it does, it does seem like it could become a really highly complex and very fluid. Like you're going to, you're good, whatever contract or whatever arrangement structure, if it's like an, an IDIQ, it's going to have to be 
put together the right way, it's going to have to be like a consumption-based service in the sense that you're going to have to be able to scale up and down as the threat uh, changes, because you're not just going to be able to put on contract. I want these types of UAVs, these ranges. And then if you're out there in theater, you have this service in place and there's a different type of, of UAS that comes over and it's a threat and the company's not on contract to do it. Like there's going to have to be some kind of smart arrangement for this. It's, I think there's a lot of, lot of learning to be done to get this, to probably get this right for this type of service. Yeah, no doubt. I would, yeah, it's interesting there, you know, like, but you can't really, you can create the requirement for a range, but what are you going to do? Is this like, it, and it also can't be based on the number of intercepts, right? Um, some of them are going to be different, like directed energy. You're not really taking up any like physical thing that you're expending um, to go get that, except for some energy. Whereas like a kinetic means you, you will, but like the marginal cost of intercepting something isn't really that big. It's almost just like having the capability out there. It's like a huge fixed investment. So everything looks like a pretty big fixed cost. Um, it, it's kind of hard to kind of see how you get that back to something like a price per mile or price per minute that you'd have in your Uber, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is going to be interesting. The other piece about this, this kind of goes back to, you know, the Iraq war with, uh, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of defense contractors doing essentially military type duties in terms of maintaining equipment and being fairly close in harm's way. And they, they had, they got paid, you know, very, very well, but it was always controversial that you had civilians, essentially civilians and contractors that were, you know, on the front lines uh, whoever is actually operating this service, you know, could potentially be very much in harm's way, um, especially for something where your UASs are, you know, coming that close to an installation or some type of deployed deployed uh, area where you're having to take down UASs. You're going to be, you're kind of on the front line. So I'm kind of curious to see what, you know, what the personnel situation is for this type of thing too, and and how that will be handled. I think that's going to be pretty complicated. Yeah, it kind of reminds, well, wasn't there a whole bunch of contractors working on Wake Island at the beginning of World War II and they, they held out for like months or whatever? Different era there. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, the, the greatest millennial generation. Um, we'll see. Uh, the next one we got, the metallurgist admits to falsifying Navy submarine steel strength test results for 36 years. Elaine Marie Thomas, 67, of Auburn, Washington, was the director of metallurgy at a foundry in Tacoma that provides steel castings to electric boat in Newport News shipbuilding, in which uh, in turn used them for submarine hulls. Thomas said she's provided false results for at least 240 production batches of steel, which amounts to around half the entire Navy's output from the Tacoma foundry in the same period. Exactly what drove Thomas to falsify the results of the strength test is unclear. But according to the Justice Department, she thought it was stupid that the Navy demand the test to be carried out at negative 100 Fahrenheit. Thomas will be sentenced in February and faces up to 10 years in prison and a million dollar fine. So this one was just kind of interesting from my perspective because there was no straight up. There was fraud, but there was no, I guess, you know, money being paid or she wasn't like, you know, getting anything out of it. She just thought the requirement was stupid. And so she wouldn't go through the expense of it. Um, 
I have no technical expertise to say whether a hundred negative hundred Fahrenheit makes sense or not, but it's, it's interesting. And she got caught and we'll they're kind of saying that there was no real impacts to the ships. Um, so if that's true, then why have the requirement? So either in my mind, it's like, it is a deal. She goes to jail and there's some, you know, negative repercussions in terms of performance, or there's no rep repercussions in terms of performance. And she, was saving the government money in some ways. <laughs> well, saving on money, but it sounds like they're actually going back and doing, you know, uh, updates to it. So, um, modifications or something. So if, if they're, if they're doing that, then, then maybe there will be, but the thing that struck me about this whole thing is, yeah, maybe that test is, was unnecessary. We always wind up, you know, over-engineering, especially for something like a submarine, you won't, you engineer it you kind of go, you know, three, three X on, you know, some of the requirements because you want to have, you know, lots of buffer there, but that this happened between 1985 and 2017, that kind of blew me away. Like this has been going on for over 30, like 32 years. So that's just insane. And yeah, there's no one else. It was just her under her own, you know, authority, like either no one like spoke up for 30 something years or it was like literally just her in a hole. Like I can't imagine that. I know. Next one we got here. GE's breaking apart is Boeing next from Forbes. Uh, Tuesday's announcement that General Electric will break itself up and shed its healthcare and energy businesses was a surprise, but perhaps it shouldn't have been. Industrial conglomerates have fallen from investors' favor, while peer play companies are in vogue largely because investors believe they can do a better job allocating capital, making investment decisions. As GE puts it, GE will be an aviation-focused company shaping the future of flight. That's an approach that is likely to appeal to the market. And to come full circle, you can't rule out a combination of Boeing. So I think, you know, the, the author was kind of going in here, will Boeing be next? And he was saying, well, they're not really a conglomerate like GE, but they actually have a bunch of, you know, former GE people, you know, high up in the organization. And they might just, <laughs> it wasn't really clear to me the reasons for going that way, but, you know, they might just do it anyway. Uh, but here he says, to come full circle, you can't rule out a combination of Boeing's commercial unit and GE Aviation. Vertical integration is frowned upon, but overwhelming bulk of Boeing's jetliners, around 90% by value, are GE or GE uh, Safran powered anyway. So this could guarantee a competitive response, perhaps even a merger between Airbus and Rolls-Royce. So that would be interesting. And this would actually kind of follow along what's been going on with uh, you know, the, the Northrop Aerojet merger. And then there was uh, talks about Lockheed merging with who is it? Someone else. Uh, but oh, Aerojet or something. Yeah. Maybe. The, yeah. They were going with Aerojet. And who did uh, Northrop recently go with in terms of GBSD? Was it Rocketdyne, I think? Or, well, I think Aerojet Rocketdyne is. Oh, Aerojet Rocketdyne. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. It was the other, <laughs> the other small, small jet manufacturing, manufacturing. Oh, Orbital ATK. That, yeah. yeah Northrop went with Orbital ATK and, and um, Lockheed's going for Aerojet. But yeah. So they're going for those merge those mergers it'll be interesting to see what happens with lockheed and airjet and whether they they actually get it it seems like um the i guess if i were a betting man i would say they probably won't merge but um i think it's kind of 50 50 but it'll be interesting you know ge and boeing commercial if they kind of merge um, that's more of a commercial thing but could have big impacts i mean i guess his thought is maybe Boeing would shed its defense units, right? Um, they're pretty walled off already. So that I don't think that would be a big, big deal for them. Any thoughts on this one? 
Well, I thought it was interesting. I don't think I realized how much Boeing senior leadership uh, came from the GE ranks. Uh, it was pretty, that was pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty crazy to read just, um, you know, pretty much how like a lot of, a lot of that leadership just switched over to Boeing. And one of the, you know, one of the things that's positive about the author is, uh, you know, it's possible that Boeing senior leadership has already shifted its focus to a breakup strategy. This would explain the baffling array of troubled programs and the company's seeming unwillingness to invest in the resources needed to improve execution, restore an engineering culture, and invest in new products. And I guess, you know, one indication of that is that their R&D budget fell 27% last year. They closed their advanced developmental composites center, um, and, and they don't seem to be sending any messages that, you know, they're going to go after any kind of new new aircraft. So, I don't know, a lot of that does sort of give you the impression that they're they're moving away from the kind of the Boeing core core business. Um, so, you know, definitely, definitely could see some breakup of it, but I don't know the, the combination of, of Boeing and GE kind of makes a little bit less sense to me because combining an engine, engine manufacturer with the, the airframe manufacturer, I, I don't know how much efficiency that gets. It's kind of like, uh, you know, a lot of the aircraft programs we have today, you know, they, they come from Rolls-Royce GE or, you know, Pratt and Whitney, um, there's not a real huge case for cramming those two together because, you know, there's somewhat, there's a whole different technology uh, suite at play and there's, you know, they, they're, the integration piece is, is, is understood pretty well. So I don't know that that's the part that doesn't quite make sense to me. Yeah, it seems like you go vertical more for kind of like new technologies or where those boundaries are not yet quite spelled out so well in the integration phase. Um, so maybe like in the 1950s of jet fighters, that might've made sense, but maybe less today. And to kind of go along with this air force back startup reveals hypersonic aircraft prototype. Uh, so the air force back startup Hermes rolled out a hypersonic aircraft prototype firing the drones afterburner or after burning engines, um, in a, at Atlanta. And so this is supposed to be the aircraft that goes Mach five. And I think <laughs> another interesting point here. So one thing, you know, we had them on the podcast and they're talking about it's hard to just uh, identify where the engine starts and the airframe ends for such an aircraft. So there's one place you probably want the vertical integration and indeed they do have the vertical integration. Uh, but it also gets back to what we're talking about from Heidi Shu. Uh, <laughs> how many of those technologies are commercial? Well, it looks like hypersonic you know, technologies are, there are some commercial technologies coming online, Hermes, um, and then you also have like some rotating detonation type stuff going on and I'm sure there's others. So, um, yeah, maybe commercials expanding out. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I, you know, I didn't even think about it when I said it earlier that, yeah, there's, there seems to be a lot more movement towards hypersonic, uh, aircraft, um, you know, especially in the commercial sector that people are getting tired of spending, you know, seven hours on, an, on a flight, you know. Uh, for for what could be a two hour flight, there's you know could be a quite quite a market there. So yeah, that's a really good point. I I thought this uh, I thought this was an interesting test. I mean, it was all on the ground, but clearly shows that they're making real progress. And I'm sure that was the intent of it. But yeah, I have uh, I have pretty uh, pretty high hopes for Hermia. Sounds like they're sounds like they're moving moving forward. And uh, yeah, it's great. And the last one we'll do here. 
Army lost telemetry tracking data with this precision strike missile at 499 kilometers from breaking defense. The flight of the Lockheed Martin made weapon called PRSM beyond the 499 kilometer threshold will be significant because it breaks previously restricted distance barriers set by the now expired intermediate range nuclear forces INF treaty. And so I, the, the general there was saying, like, we lost track of it after 499.2 kilometers. And I'm just like, did they lose telemetry tracking data? Or did they just say, like, we're not going to tell you how long it went because, you know, we're just going to keep this kind of close. But, oh, we can break that threshold, <laughs> you know, if we want to. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it I mean, was 499.2 sounds, it sounds suspicious. 499. It does. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. That, that, and you don't lose, I don't think you lose telemetry for any reason. I mean, typically you lose telemetry because, I mean, maybe there was a storm or something in the area, but yeah, you typically would lose it if something happens to the, to the aircraft. But if it's still flying just fine, that would be, yeah, that seems unusual. So it would also seem unusual if uh, the missile prototype just like happened to land 499.2 kilometers, right? Like, there's guys like that just seems weird. Like there's that's too much coincidence. You know, like when economists say like the GDP figure grew like 3.928%. It's like, yeah, I'm sure it did. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Could be one of those. They did lose telemetry, but they lost it because they turned off the comms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. That's all we got time for this week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.